Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. If I've not met you yet, my name is Aaron, and get to be the pastor. And we've been in a series in the book of John. If you're And so we like to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we come to a really, really beautiful passage. And we're entitling this message, Power Beyond the Pool. And so to start out, I want to tell you a little bit about a funny memory as a kid. Um, as a kid, my parents would uh, help host uh, these big birthday parties for my sister and I. And one of the favorite things they liked to do when we were little, little, was that they would set up sort of a big curtain in the living room and they would have this fishing game. And so you would take a fishing pole that had a magnet on it and they would throw it over the curtain. And then on the other side would be some sort of magnetic uh, contraption that had candy attached to it. And the kid would bring it back over after my dad or mom would tug on the line and they're like, oh, look what's behind this curtain. And then the kids would stand in line and then we'd throw it over. And then at the very end, the birthday kid got the biggest prize and toss over the magnet. And then you're wheeling over like some sort of bike contraption that my dad's really actually just picking up, you know, over the curtain. And we all thought that there was something magical beyond the curtain. We're like, this is so incredible. We can fish in our living room. Cause I'm from North Carolina and I, apparently that's what you think you do. What's interesting about that is that I was missing who's behind the curtain. Who's the one that's blessing? Who's the one that's active? It was my mom and dad. And in this story, we come to a man who has been paralyzed and hasn't walked for 38 years. And he thinks the power is in the pool, but it's what's behind the pool, like behind the curtain. It's God, the one that's at work and God is the one that he truly needs. As we come to this passage, guys, we're gonna see that we're looking just like this man to all sorts of pools in our life, laying by all sorts of areas in order to find hope or value or love. And today we're trying to see that there's a power beyond all of that. Beyond the pool, there's a power and a love that is from God and we must pursue him. So if you've got your Bible, we're gonna unpack uh, this story just kind of verse by verse together. And I'm hoping that you see four truths about Jesus, four truths about Jesus, and then they have massive implications for our everyday life. So here's the first one. First thing I want you to see is the identity of Jesus. And I put some notes on the screen here so you can take notes if you'd like. And again, we always encourage you, if you want to learn more, we can talk more after service as well. So the identity of Jesus is further revealed to us in this passage, guys, in a really beautiful and unique way. I really nerded about it. I took some time, obviously, to study this week. And then I got done with this section. I ran to Emily. I was like, I got to tell you all this. I'm super excited. So here's what we're going to see in verses one through three. Let me read to you. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And obviously the after this is what Kyle preached last week, this official and his son being healed. It's after that event, Jesus travels up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has about five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, the scripture says, the blind and the lame and paralyzed. So guys, this scene begins with Jesus traveling up to Jerusalem for what was likely one of the three major Jewish celebrations that they held in the city. This could be the Passover or this could be the Feast of the Tabernacle. This could be the Pentecost feast that's a feast that's described in Exodus 23. 
But what's interesting is not necessarily why he went there. What's interesting at first is this small but significant detail that John chooses to draw out in verse two. He tells us that there's a pool that's in the city by the sheep gate. Now, why does he slow down? If you know John, he kind of is moving through passages at a pretty good rate here. Why does he slow down and give us the detail that it's by the sheep gate that Jesus is passing through? Well, here's why. By entering Jerusalem through this sheep gate, Jesus himself is identifying as the sheep in Isaiah 53, who through his death on the cross that Jesus would bear our griefs. He would carry our sorrows. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And it's by his wounds as a sacrificial sheep that we are spiritually healed and forgiven of sin. See, because through the sheep gate, animals were brought into this temple to be sacrificed on behalf of the people. You guys see where I'm going with this, right? They would be brought by the pool, mentioned in this text. They would be washed and consecrated and prayed over. And then they would be led to the temple for sacrifice. And in fact, this is the very gate that led directly to Golgotha, which is the very place which Jesus' sacrificial death took place. Guys, even further, the sheep gate actually was the very first gate that was chosen to be rebuilt under Nehemiah's leadership back in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter three. gate by hand. But guys, it was the only gate out of the 10 gates that was prayed over and consecrated and set aside as holy. Why? Because of its sacred use of ushering in sheep to be sacrificed on behalf of the people's sins. And it's right here, tucked into the details of verse two, that we see Jesus boldly and beautifully declare that he is indeed the sacred and sacrificial sheep that was sent by the Father to take away our sins for all of those who turn and trust in him. Amen? Now, this is additionally powerful, though, because of the place, though, that Jesus went to after passing through this sheep gate. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus went where? To the pool of Bethesda, which translates to the phrase, the house of mercy, because indeed that's what Jesus was going to bring, mercy to this place. Now, guys, let's talk about this pool for a moment here. Now, this pool was a spring-fed pool just north of where the temple was, and it had five porches that were on it, and they were used to protect the people from the sun and the, the heat and the rain overhead, and the people would gather underneath them. It was a mercy from the community. And at this pool, the text says, a great number of people with disabilities would lay, people who were blind or lame or paralyzed, as verse three says. And these folks would wait expectantly at this pool because here's what they believed. They believed that an angel would come down into this pool and he would stir up the water. And then according to the superstition, our footnote tells us that whoever stepped into this water first after the water was stirred would be healed of every disease that they had. And so by Jesus coming through the sheep gate to the house of mercy as the ultimate sheep who will take away all the sin and all the suffering for all those who turn and trust in him. And it's at the pool of Bethesda that we see this beautiful and amazing truth. 
So let's bring it down to some application. What should this cause in your heart? First, it should cause worship to happen. Worship and all. That Jesus in a beautifully poetic way is seeking to reveal himself as the great sheep, the ultimate sheep in this passage. He travels all the way up into the city to reach one man who's in the worst place of his life. 38 years of being paralyzed. No one has helped him. He's abandoned. He's got no family. He's basically living at this pool and Jesus comes to reach him. And you know what that tells us about us? That Jesus also sees us in our worst places, our biggest struggles. And Jesus travels to us through this text to tell us that he knows and he sees and he cares and that healing is in his name. So the first response we should have this passage is, yes, God, I I worship you for who you are as the ultimate sheep. Guys, the second thing we should see here is that this passage calls us to have a witness. We should want to tell other people about this great sheep that's took away the sins of the world. That's what John tells us in chapter one. He says, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this passage should cause us to want to tell other people about how good and gracious and forgiving and loving our God is. So worship and witness and last, want. This passage, if we're not yet a Christian and we're considering the claims of Christianity today and maybe we haven't been to church in a while or we're just getting back on our, our college or our grad program's break and we're coming to listen to this maybe for the first time, this should maybe cause a want in us. A want in us to maybe see God and say, I, I think I do need this savior. This savior who is this sheep that's willing to die in my place and love me for who I am and what I've done, who's unconditional, that meets me in the worst places of my life. I, I want him. And this passage beautifully brings out this identity of this is the God you can worship witness about and what your heart deeply actually wants. Number two, the compassion of Jesus we see. We see his identity, yes, in this text, but we see the compassion of Jesus. And you'll see that in verse five and six. And let's check that out together. It says this, one man was there at the pool who had been an invalid for 38 years, meaning that he was both unwell, but he was also unable to walk on his own for nearly, check it out, Four long, agonizing decades. And when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. And so he asks him this really odd question, it seems like. He says, do you want to be healed? Now, listen, I'm not saying that this is a stupid question, but I am saying I hate stupid questions. And I think that that's how this guy is interpreting what Jesus says to him, right? Because it's a really odd question for Jesus to ask this man, do you want to be healed? At least on the surface, it seems odd. Because guys, this man has been laying by this pool day in and day out, day in and day out for years now, just hoping for this water superstition to be true. So guys, of course, this man wants to be healed. He wouldn't be laying there. And everyone else around him knew that he wanted to be healed. So why did Jesus ask him, do you want to be healed? Well, here's why. Because the question was not an intellectual one from Jesus. It was an invitational one. Jesus was inviting the man 
to come find healing in him and hope in him and not in the pool. And we know this because of verse six. It tells us that Jesus intellectually and divinely knew that this man had been staying by the pool for a long time. He knew this. Jesus is God. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He knew the answer to this own question. So his question didn't know the answer. His question was invitational in nature, and it was born out of love and compassion for this man. Guys, I can even imagine for a moment, kind of put on creative thoughts here, I can imagine that Jesus is even reaching out his hand when he asks him this question, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Inviting this man to trust in his power rather than the pool. Guys, as one commentary noted, Jesus' question serves for us and serves for this man at least four main purposes. And I'll drop this on the screen for you. Four main purposes this question served. First, this question secured the man's attention. Guys, this man was alone. He had no family. He had no friends. He had no support. As verse seven indicates, there was no one to help him get down to this pool, even if there was a miracle of the angel in the water. So a question from someone would have grabbed this man's attention for he had been neglected and abandoned by this pool with again, no one present to help him. And so Jesus was using this question to draw his attention to him. A kind and courteous way Sir, do you, do you want to be healed? I want to engage in a conversation. I want to invite you to something. Number two, this question focused on the man's need. Again, Jesus had traveled all the way to Jerusalem to meet this man in the place of his greatest distress and discouragement, which was his physical and spiritual need of healing, which leads us to the third purpose of the question. It offered him healing. <coughs> Excuse me. Through this question, Jesus was not seeking to gain information about this man's desire for healing. He was trying to offer him transformation through this physical and spiritual healing. It wasn't sort of intellectual conversation. It was an invitation. It was about transformation. Do you want to be healed? I can do it. Then lastly, number four, it communicated the depth of Christ's love and concern and compassion for this man Guys, for Jesus cared about what this man cared about. And even more so, Jesus cared about, yes, this man's physical well-being, but he ultimately came for his spiritual well-being. Jesus knew that eventually this man would all pass away. Just like you and I, we will all pass away. So physical healing is good. If there's something miraculous that happens in your life, Christian, where there is some sort of healing, that's good and wonderful. But we need a healing that's past the physical, right? Something that will heal our hearts, our minds, our souls, and bring us into relationship with God. And this is what Jesus was about. And he was using the physical healing to get to the ultimate healing this man needed, which was God himself, the forgiveness of his sins and life and joy in the relationship with God. And so church, the same is true though for, for you. The same is true because it's through this passage that Jesus ask you and I the very same question, church, do you want to be healed? For like this man, as we talked about earlier, each of you and me, we're, we're laying by the pool of something to help in, to bring us healing from the troubles 
that plague us the most. Guys, for some of you in the room that you are laying by a relationship, you're thinking that this relationship, if I stay with it long enough, it will provide me joy and freedom and happiness. But yet that dating relationship might be leading you in a path that's actually hurting you, harming your relationship with God. You're doing things and saying things and spending money and going places that you never thought that you'd go before with your convictions. And so we lay in these relationships thinking that by this pool will satisfy me. For others of you, you are laying by the pool of a job or your school, thinking that if I can climb the ladder enough and get my boss's approval, then finally I will feel valuable enough. And so you lay by this pool and you work hard day in and day out, which work ethic is good, but you do it so that you can receive value, importance, and status. And some of us, we go to school, which is wonderful and good, but the reason why we went is so we could prove ourselves to somebody. And we need letters by our name in order for our name to feel valuable. I need a PhD, I need a master's, I need this license. And if I get this finally, that I have value in this world. And we lay by the pools of our job and school thinking that if we lay there long enough, we sit there long enough, then something will be stirred up in us and will finally be significant. And guys, for others of us, for you in particular, it might be a trip, might be a new experience, might be a new purchase. If I can get this new thing that attracts my attention away from the harm or challenge, then finally I'll feel okay. And so we go on spending sprees. We always hope for the new vacation. We're always thinking about what other experiences can we have in order to numb the pain that we feel inside. And you lay by all of these pools and Jesus is saying to you, do you wanna be healed? The inner side of you that wants love to be known, to be cared for, to find value, we're laying in all these other places where it cannot be found. And that's exactly where this man finds himself laying by the pools that have no power for him. And in this passage, we see Jesus' compassion. We don't see his condemnation. We see his compassion. He doesn't say, hey, bro, your tradition is stupid. Your worldview, your religion is dumb. Why do you think an angel would come in here? That's just superstition because it's near the temple. Why would you do that? He doesn't come with condemnation. He comes with a question and compassion. And church, he comes to you in this passage and extends an invitation for you to find hope and healing in him. Like this man, guys, he sees your pain. He knows your struggles. He knows the fears that have paralyzed you in this life. And he comes to you guys in this text today and he offers out his hand to draw you away from the pools that will not satisfy, to draw you to himself where real healing begins. Does it make sense? That's what we're seeing here really going on in this passage. This man doesn't just want physical healing. It's the fact that physical healing might bring some friends again, might allow him to work again, not be abandoned anymore, not be the outcast in society. And so he's wanting, if I can just get healed physically, I will be valuable again. I can get my life back. All the things that God already tells us in the cross, you are loved, you are valuable, so much so that Christ would pour out his life into death on the cross so you would know you're loved. This is what this man needs to know. In church today, that is what you need to know. Jesus extends, do you want to be healed? Number three, 
the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus we see next in verses seven through nine. Let me read it. So the sick man answers this question. He says, sir, by the way, we don't see sir a lot in the scriptures when someone's responding to Jesus, they either call him Lord or rabbi or God or teacher. This guy's never seen Jesus. He didn't ask for Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. He'd never heard of Jesus. He just calls him sir. And I, I love that. And here's why. Because Jesus comes to a man that didn't even want Jesus. And this is what Jesus does in salvation. He comes to us who the Bible says that we are sometimes rebellious. Sometimes we, we don't want God. We're enemies of God. We're running away from him and God in his love comes to us and we might not even know him or know about him, but he comes to us and he wants to minister to us and bring us in relationship with him. So the sick man answers him, sir, I have no one to put me into this pool when the water stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me, I can't get there in time. And through all of that talk, Jesus just looks at him and says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And guys, I love this. At once, the man was healed. Imagine the bones miraculously start coming together and the ligaments and the muscles that were atrophied, all miraculously was being rehealed simply by the words of Jesus when no water was used. At once this man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now guys, to really grasp for a second, the power of this moment, we gotta just back up a little bit here to really understand what this man believed would make him right. Now in your scriptures, in the ESV Bible there that you might be holding in your chair, did you notice how verse four is not included in this passage? If you look at it again in your Bible, it's like verse one, verse two, verse three, oops, verse five. Well, was it really an oops? Why is verse four missing here? And the answer is because it's not in the oldest and best manuscripts that we have of this passage. Guys, as we've discussed in previous weeks together, guys, there are thousands of Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament. And the way we've arrived to your amazingly reliable Greek and Hebrew and English versions is that those texts have been compared with each other in painstakingly in complex ways so that we could arrive at an accurate account of the original writings. And here in verse four, it seems that along the way, a copyist made a note in the margin, made a note in the margin that made its way into later copies of this passage. More than likely, a scribe considered that man's reference of stirred water a source of possible confusion to someone who would read it. Since indeed the author John like doesn't expound upon what's this stirred water thing mean in verse six and seven. So the scribe would write a quick note in the margin to explain why the pool, someone would be waiting by the pool and why the water would be stirred based on this common belief that an angel would give the water some healing powers. So he writes that in the corner saying, a lot of people believed at the time as a superstition that an angel would come down. And he's writing that as a note. So that if you're reading this manuscript, you would have sort of a first commentary Bible study note in the passage. And later on, it moved from the margins and it moved closer to the text. And then finally, Later on, if you have a New King James Version of the Bible, it was added in as a part of the actual scriptures. 
Because scholars have made it very clear that this, this wasn't a part of the original writings. It was added in as a commentary note. And it doesn't, by the way, it does not pose a threat to the accuracy of all the scriptures here. That's why I love that even the ESV translation is very clear. Hey, we got lots of manuscripts here. A couple of these, hey, this is not involved in it. And I just wanna make that known to you because I'm not trying to trick anybody. This wasn't a part of the most original manuscripts. It was added later because it got a little confused. So we're gonna put it right here as a footnote for you to know. Guys, all in all though, how the pool worked according to verse four is not essential to the story. It's how Jesus works is what's essential to the story. And that's what this man was missing. And that's what the scribe was trying to help us understand. This man's faith was in the pool and not in the person of Christ. So according to verse seven, this man is looking to three things. He's looking to the pool, he's looking to other people, and he's looking to a popular superstition of the day to heal him. When he says this, he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another just steps down in front of me and he misses the person and the power that's right there in front of him. And yet right then and right there, even in the face of this man's unbelief and in his doubt and in his rejection of God, what does God do? In an act of unconditional love and grace, God chooses to heal this man. Because this man didn't have faith yet. This man didn't trust yet. He was given the gift of healing. Guys, honestly, if you're a Christian today, how did you end up believing in Christ Hopefully there was lots of evidence and contemplation and seeking truth and philosophy and trying to understand if Jesus was really, truly the person of history. Did he really, truly raise from that? I hope that happened, but how did you ultimately believe? And it was simply because God in his love gave you the gift of faith to trust in him. When maybe at one time you didn't love God, you were rebelling from God, you were distant from God and God in his grace just came to you when you were looking to your own pools and your own people and your own places for life and healing and Jesus just comes to you through a friend or a neighbor or through a sermon online or through a parent and you're hearing the gospel and God simply gives you the faith to believe. That's what happens with this man. And I love what happens. Jesus doesn't use the water to heal him doesn't use one ounce of it, which by the way, just another reminder for us that baptism does not save. There's nothing magical about the water. If there was any water that was magical, it was this water. And Jesus turns away from it and says, we're not dealing with water here. I have the power to save and change. Guys, at our church, we don't believe baptism saves you. Baptism in the water, when you go down and come back up, it's a symbol that you've already been washed clean of your sin when you put your faith in Christ on the cross. And Jesus doesn't use water, he uses his words. The sheer power and strength of his words in verse eight, when he says, get up and take up your bed and walk, that was enough. The same words that Jesus used to create everything in Genesis chapter one, that same power in the beginning, God spoke and all of these things happened. That same power that spoke then speaks to this man and recreates broken body, recreates and forms his legs and the muscles. And this man rises to meet Jesus eye to eye and face to face. Guys, those three commands is interesting that Jesus says. 
He says, get up, pick up your bed and walk. And guys, this expresses the completeness of the healing. This man was to stand up right then, right there. He was to carry the mat, which became his bed, and he was to walk away healed. And those mere words had the power to heal all of this man. The 38 years of laying by this pool alone and neglected, and God did it in an instant. And Christian, listen, here's how this is applicable for you. Guys, the same reality is waiting you when you enter into heaven one day. Guys, to be honest, I think one of the hardest things as a Christian, which there are many, is that when you read the Bible, you see all kinds of miraculous healings, all kinds, Old Testament, New Testament. And you and I are like, okay, I want that to happen in my life. Would you provide a miracle for my mom or my dad or my friend or for me? Or would you step into that, God? Would you heal this brokenness that I'm experiencing? And oftentimes, on this side of heaven, we receive what answer? A no. And we get discouraged and we might deconstruct from our faith and we might think there, there is no such thing as God and you're in the 38 year time is what I'm trying to say. You're in that 38 years. Your whole lifespan is this 38 years of waiting by the pool. And the moment heaven happens, the moment you pass is the moment that you get up and you walk and you take up your mat and you're healed for all of time. If you're a Christian, listen, I promise you, you will be healed. If you're a Christian, you will be healed. It might not be in the 38 years, the 40 years, the 60 years that you live on this earth, but I promise you the same thing that happens to this man is gonna happen to you. The anxiety, the depression, the physical disability, the mental illness, all of that that you deal with that plagues your work life, that plagues your relationships, all the social anxiety, all the challenges that you faced, one day it will be fully and completely gone. And you just like this man will rise to see Jesus face to face in heaven and every tear is wiped away, every sickness gone, every illness and death shall be no more. And so if you're waiting in this time for a healing, you're waiting for some miracle of God, God may provide it. We see that in the scriptures. God may provide it for you, Christian. But what he does promise you is that you will be healed in heaven because of what Christ did for you on the cross. And so maybe you're in that 38 years right now. God, would you heal this relationship? Would you heal my heart? Would you heal this marriage? Would you heal my body? And if you hear God say, no, it's really a wait, wait. I am coming. I will fix this. I will make it right. And guys, I'm hoping from this text that it, it causes you to believe again. It causes you not to give up. You're not gonna be stuck in the challenges that you are facing that plague your everyday life. Does that make sense? I want you to see his power. Yes, God may do a miraculous thing for you. Pray for it, hope for it. But ultimately it's promised to you. And you just might be in the 38 years right now waiting for it to happen. It will come, it will come to pass, amen? Last thing we see here, finally is that we see the authority of Jesus. We've seen the identity, we've seen the compassion, we've seen the power to heal that's coming for all of us. 
And then finally, we see the authority of Jesus. And we're going to see it in two places here. And let's start by unpacking the first one by looking at verse nine. Now, guys, all of this happened, all of this healing happened on the Sabbath day, it says. Verse 10. So the Jewish people at the time said to the man who had been healed, they're like, bro, it's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. Then jump down to verse 16. And this was why the Jewish people at the time were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And notice how we highlight that in the text, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Guys, listen, Jesus knew what he was doing when he healed this man on the Sabbath day. In fact, guys, Jesus could have healed this man any day of the week, but he picks the Sabbath day. And the question is, why does he pick this one particular day of the week to heal someone? And it's because Jesus is revealing his authority as Lord over the Sabbath. See guys, during this time, the Sabbath was a day that God called for his people to be physically resting from their vocation and to recharge for the week ahead and to use this time to remember and rejoice in God through worship. Yet the Jewish leaders would twist though the purpose of this day and made it about a tradition and legalism and added a list of 39 forbidden categories of work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, which included carrying goods like the mat that Jesus commanded this man to carry. Guys, the Jewish leaders even believed that if you follow these commandments, you follow these traditions and you follow these rabbinic laws close enough, then you could be made right in God's eyes and you could earn your way to heaven is what they would teach, which is obviously a false theology, by the way, and actually leads people away from God and not to him. So what does Jesus do? Jesus deliberately chooses to heal this man on the Sabbath, commands him to pick up his mat in front of everybody in order to call out the superficial and bankrupt ideas of legalism. He wanted to point out that salvation, eternal life, heaven, forgiveness of sins was not through something that you could do. It's through something that Jesus did for us on the cross in our place. Going to heaven is not about works that you could do. It's works that he's already done and your faith in him and those works. In fact, the late pastor Tim Keller would often note that legalism is this. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus in order to be acceptable and clean before God. He'd say this, he'd say, legalism is far more than the conscious belief that I can be saved by my good works. It's a web of attitudes of heart and character that believes that God's love for you is conditioned on something that you can be or that you can do. It's the attitude that you can offer certain things like your ethical goodness or your relative avoidance of some deliberate wrongs or your faithfulness to the Bible and the church that can make you clean and acceptable before God. And that's what these Pharisees were teaching. And God tells us in Ephesians chapter two that no, it's by grace, it's a gift that you're saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Why? It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. 
Guys, it's through the ending of this passage that we see two powerful truths about Christ's authority. Number one, we see this. Jesus is the only person in place where salvation is found. It's not found, church, in religious obedience like the Pharisees thought. Guys, there is no way you could earn your way to God's love through your good deeds. Imagine for the moment this terrible analogy that we're out in the parking lot and Kyle, our ministry associate, decides that he just wants to just hit my wife with a car today. He wouldn't. Kyle's a great guy. I can always use this illustration. If Kyle had did that, hit my wife with a car, and then comes to me the next day and be like, hey man, I'm really sorry that that happened. Let me buy you lunch. I'll make it right. Like, bro, that doesn't, that doesn't make it right. Okay, well then, what if I like work for you for a little bit? Or what if I like take care of your kids and babysit them? Does the good deed outweigh all the things that he had just done? Does it bring my wife back from what had happened to her with the car? No. Guys, when you and I try to earn our way to God, say, God, look, I went to church and look, I gave money or look, I read my Bible or I was nice to people or I voted for this person or I stood up for this activism or I did this social justice. Look what I did. If we do that and say, God, this is what proves my goodness. God can just take a list and say, well, here's everything else. Here's what you did here and here and here. And if we're trying to compare our morality to God's morality, we're going to fall short. And that's what the scriptures tell us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we can't earn our way back by doing good or moral things. Christ's authority is made clear in this passage. He gets the final word that's above the Pharisees. And it says that salvation is found, forgiveness is found, life is found in him and him alone. And number two, Jesus is the only person and place where satisfaction is found. For Jesus ends this passage today by telling the man in verse 14, go and sin no more. Now, why does he tell this man to do that? Jesus is inviting this man to leave his life of sin behind, looking to the pools of everything else to find satisfaction and pleasure and comfort. Jesus tells him to go and sin no more and leave those places behind and to find his real hope, his real pleasure, his real comfort, his real security in Christ alone and not other places or other people or other pools because those offer us false hope and fleeting pleasure. So church, let me truly ask you today, have you truly turned to Jesus for your salvation and your daily satisfaction? Guys, if not, would you hear again the invitation of Christ and would you receive his offer as he asks you again today through this text, friend, do you want to be healed? And may you turn to Christ today and receive the healing of sins Receive the healing of the forgiveness of sins and the promise of pain erased. Guys, as we all await the glory of heaven together. Guys, these powerful four truths have beautiful implication for our life. Let's press into him. Let's run away from the pools that do not bring pleasure and drink deeply from the God who says, I am the living water. I'm really the power behind the pool. Let's pray together.